the Italian Wine Podcast is the community-driven platform for Italian wine geeks around the world. Support the show by donating at italianwinepodcast.com. Donate five or more euros and we'll send you a copy of our latest book, My Italian Grape Geek Journal, absolutely free. To get your free copy of My Italian Grape Geek Journal, click support us at italianwinepodcast.com or wherever you get your pods. Grazie mille. Welcome to this special Italian wine podcast broadcast. This episode is a recording off Clubhouse, the popular drop-in audio chat. This Clubhouse session was taken from the Wine Business Club and Italian Wine Club. Listen in as wine lovers and experts alike engage in some great conversation on a range of topics in wine. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. And remember to subscribe and rate our show wherever you tune in. Hello, good morning. Different time slot, half past nine in the morning. And I'm just drinking my coffee here. I bought a new uh, latte maker. I'm trying to explain how that works to Leica this morning. Good morning, everybody. My name's Stevie Kim, and welcome to the Italian Wine House. Now it's called, it used to be called the Italian Wine Club. Everything is different now on Clubhouse. As you know, this is what we call the Ambassador's Corner where an Italian wine ambassador at large, they get to interview their favorite wine producer in circa 60 minutes. I know it seems very long, but it's actually one of the most popular shows that we replay on Italian wine podcasts, wherever you get your pods. And I see, I see Nico, buongiorno, Sue, Tolson. This is a different time slot. And they thank you for joining us. We usually do it later, but the reason being because today's Ambassador's Corner is hosted by Marco Nodio, who's a Kiwi. Hey, Marco, good morning. Hi, Stevie. How are you? What time is it over there? Where are you, first of all? Well, I'm in Auckland, New Zealand. It's 9.30 p.m., so it's 12 hours difference. We are ahead of 12 hours here. Yeah, you make it sound like it should be really obvious. We know where you are, but uh, most people do not know. I saw you at Wine to Wine. Did you also go on Gita Scholastica? No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I It was a very short trip to Italy just for Wine to Wine. Plus, I visited my family in uh, Chioggia near Venice. And when I came back to New Zealand, it was just 10 days in Italy. Wow. Okay. You'll have to join us next time. It was yeah. really fantastic. I went to Marche, which is completely undiscovered for, for the most part, as with regards to, you know, our studies. And it was the first time ever to go into the Marche region. It was fantastic. And then the other group mm-hmm. went to, of course, the Benvenuto Brunello, which is a more consolidated event with many, many Italian wine ambassadors at large. So, Marco, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, a skinny version of who you are to our listeners? Oh, yes, certainly, Stevie. So I've been in New Zealand for 20 years here and um, in my uh, I was I'm born uh, I was born in Chioggia near Venice uh, in 1964 a long time ago and um, I'm uh, I studied uh, economics at the Bocconi University in Milan so I, 
my initial uh, career was uh, as uh, in finance. Uh, and this is similar to what Salvino actually had. Salvino Benanti, oh, so the same I'm kind actually, of background. I, I'm a Bocconiano. I mean, I did their MBA program, but so we're all Bocconiani. Oh. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's very good. Actually, I visited Bocconi recently when I was in Milan just, just a few days ago, actually. Bocconi changed a lot. I mean, it grew. They have a 50-meter swimming pool now, part of the university. I wish it was there when, when, when I was a student. Are you a swimmer? I mean, you, you look like I a am. Swimmer. I am a swimmer. Okay. And then... You from finance yes, to so basically, why wine? How did that happen? Well, it happened that I actually took a break from my uh, career in finance and I had this um, epic uh, trip by sailing boat. Uh, it took it took me three years and I sailed from Italy to New Zealand with, uh, with a yacht and with my wife. And uh, we landed in New Zealand. And uh, New Zealand is a country where you can start uh, afresh. You can, um, you can start uh, a new project. Uh, and I, I went again to university. I attended a course, one-year course in wine science. And then I planted a small vineyard in the, the land that I bought near, near Auckland. And uh, I, I learned how to make wine. Then I realized that it's much, much easier to import good wines, like Benanti wines, <laughs> rather than trying to produce wines, which is an extremely difficult job. And so I, I became uh, an, an importer, an importer of uh, Italian wines. Now I have a very large portfolio and uh, very, very successful so far. Yeah. So that's fantastic. So, Marco, why did you choose one of the twin brothers today? Why did you Salvino. choose Salvino today? Yeah. Well, I, I chose uh, uh, Benanti and then I didn't know if uh, Salvino or Antonio was available, but they are twin brothers. They are both working in the winery. And uh, because Benanti, as everyone knows, is a benchmark producer of Etna wines since the beginning of Etna wines. They actually, in a way, started the whole thing. Nowadays, Etna is very popular, but back in 1988, when the winery, the Benanti winery was founded, the situation was very different. So in my opinion, the growth of Etna wines in the last 20 years represents a model to follow for all denominations in Italy, really. A truthful representation of a territory with a strict focus on quality. So Benanti has led the way in this regard. So I think there are plenty of reasons to choose Benanti. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we go to, uh, as you know, we've been going to Etna as the group, you know, for VIA. Uh, we've been doing the Gita Scholastica for uh, many, many, well, I wouldn't say many, many, but I, I think good six or seven years now already. And of course, we always meet up also with, you know, Salvo Fotti, who was their enologist, because they're kind of the alpha, yeah. right? They've started this whole Etna movement. So I'm very excited to cool. have Salvino on the show today. And as you know, you know, we're kind of geeky here. So what are the learning objectives that we should expect from this call today? Well, today we will learn about um, where we are at with Etna Wines. I mean, this growth in the growth in the reputation and the profi high profile worldwide has been phenomenal so far. But what are the next stages? What, what's going to happen going ahead? So Antonio Benanti, I think the, the Sabino's brother, held the leadership role in the consortium of Etna Wines until recently. And certainly Salvino can can tell us what the drivers of this denomination will be in the near future. 
specifically about his winery, Benanti will let us know what what he thinks are the reasons for the current success of of his wines and what are his next uh, projects. Okay, fantastic. So I'm looking forward to this call and I am going to leave the floor to you. So take over, Marco, and I will come back towards the end of the show to see if there are any questions. Over to you. Very good. Thank you again, uh, Stevie. And uh, hi, Salvino. How are you? Hi, Marco. Hi, everybody. I'm great. Thank you. It's 9.30 a.m., so the beginning of my day, and it's a good day to start. <laughs> it's a good way to start my day. So thank you for inviting yeah. me. I just had a glass of Etna Rosso at dinner. I guess for you it's a bit too early for a glass of your wines. I had an espresso. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. First of all, Sabrina, I would like to tell you, uh, but to remind the listener how I came to know Benanti, because I think there is a, it's an interesting story here. So the connection between uh, me and Benanti came through California, of all places, because uh, California, and specifically, uh, I'm referring to Shelley Lindgren, that is a very leading ambassador of Italian wines in California, and probably in US in general. And she, she is a very close friend of one of uh, one very famous restaurateur in New Zealand, and uh, she introduced me to to Benanti. So in 2016, uh, I visited the winery with a, a couple of my customers, and we were very impressed by the wines and the stories behind. And, and this started a successful collaboration since. So this is quite interesting how uh, California came into the picture. Uh, but f- first of all, Salvina, I would like to uh, just uh, give a, a little bit of um, biography, read a little bit of your bi- biography, so for people listening, you know your, your kind of background. So you you were born in uh, you were born in in Catania, um, in the foothills of Mount Etna, in uh, May of 1974, and you married to Olivia, and you have two sons. After growing up in Sicily, you moved to Switzerland in 1988 at the age of 14 to attend the International School of Geneva. So in that year, your father Giuseppe, a trained chemist, founded Benanti Winery, reviving an old family tradition with the intention of making fine wines on the slopes of one of the world's most active volcanoes. At uh, the age of 18, uh, you moved to London, where you studied business, before working in the financial sector for a number of years. You subsequently returned to Italy to work alongside your father and, and the family in the family winery, and, uh, and you started to achieve uh, national and international recognition. Together with your brother, you took over a family, the family winery at the age of 38. In that year, your, the family divested other assets to focus exclusively on the winery. And this was a decision that you never regretted. So built uh, on the foundation foundation laid by your father and thanks to the vision of the second generation, Benanti Winery has a well-earned international reputation with the, with the aim of making Benanti one of the finest wineries in the old world. So this is quite a resume. Did you want to add anything to, to that, uh, Salvino? No, it's very accurate. And (laughs) uh, I consider um, my uh, capacity as a wine producer, wine entrepreneur, my um, uh, 
my third life. Uh, my first life was as a, as a young child in Sicily. Then I had a second life, which was uh, um, a very international life. You know, having you know, spending time in Geneva and then in London, and and then um, you know, in my late thirties, I decided to uh, come back to Italy. Um, no longer wear a suit or a tie, and just nose dive into the wine world. Um, and like I said, it's been 11 years now, never look back, and I'm very, very happy. This, uh, it allows me to spend a lot of time in, the nat in nature, do something very good for, the, for Sicily, for Etna, um, for our family name. So I'm very glad I made this decision. Obviously, the financial world can be very rewarding from a number of um, aspects, but um, the wine world and everything that goes with it, especially when you own the winery and you call the shots and you make the decisions and you travel and you take pride in what you do, in my opinion, is invaluable. So very, very happy. I just hope that we can continue doing this for uh, several more decades. Very good. Yeah, definitely quite exciting. So we start with the questions, uh, Salvino. Sure. So the first question would be, can you tell us about uh, the main points, the main steps of the Benanti story, in particular, I mean, the, the winery, since the start in 1988? Yes. Let me tell you like, about the key points of our, of our, of our winery's uh, history and uh, So um, back in the 80s, here on Etna, uh, a few heroes decided to find, to create a golf course, a golf club, Rovitello Golf Club. And my father was one of the founders, although he's never held a club in his hands, but he liked the idea. <laughs> uh, when the golf club was finished, they had a celebration and they had organized a big dinner. And he did not like the wine that was poured that night. So he asked, let's say the sommelier, the idea of sommelier almost 40 years ago on Manhattan, was quite remote. But the guy was pouring the wine. He said, what, what are we drinking? And he said, um, some local stuff. And he said, I don't like it that much. <laughs> um, can you pour anything better from, uh, from the area made with uh, local grapes? Uh, and he said, um, well, we prefer international varietals because People know them more and uh, they're a safer bet and you don't have to explain too much about those big international wines. So, no, I'm afraid I cannot pour anything that would be worth pouring to such an audience made with Nerello Mascalese or Caricante. So my father said, you know what, I want to be the person who makes that wine. <laughs> so uh, that's the story he told me. I was not there that night because I had already moved to Geneva literally a few weeks before. So while I was away for many years, my father was developing his crazy dream. Literally at the beginning, it was just him in his little corner studying. He, he was a chemist. Um, he recently passed, uh, but he was a chemist by degree in training. And, uh, and he was working also in the pharmaceutical business with his father um, as a main profession. So he was doing his little crazy side project. My brother, my mother and I would just look at him and wonder what he was up to, if this would go anywhere. <laughs> so it's quite funny looking at it now with hindsight. And yeah, basically um, he hired um, what was then a young enologist. Uh, Stevie mentioned him, Salvo Foti. I'm not sure what age he was back then, maybe, maybe late 20s. Uh, yeah, I think he was in his late 20s. And my father said, 
I, a friend of mine, a cardiologist, recommended your name during a casual chat. Do you want to work with me and try to make wine on Mount Etna? And he said, I've never made wine on Mount Etna. The main wineries in Sicily these days are on the other side of the island. So my involvement as a young enologist has been with those wineries in other parts of the island, two, three hours from here, working with different grapes than Nerello Mascalese. But I can give it a shot, you know, if you trust me, you know, we can go by trial and error. We can try, work together. So that's it. Since then, they started working. My father with his ideas, he, they were both quite young. Um, they resorted to some advice. Uh, Professor Jean Sigris from Bonn in, uh, in Bourgogne, in Burgundy. Um, enologists from Piemonte, uh, Gian Domenico Negro, Monchiero, and a professor of enology from Piemonte, though Sicilian-born, Professor Di Stefano. So quite a team for a small project. Um, they started working with Pierre-Marie Guillaume, uh, the nurser from France, uh, who uh, started to study, study the clones. And they created quite a group. My father was the person, the mastermind, but he had a lot of um, uh, advice from these uh, very knowledgeable people. And the rest is history. The winery started producing wines. My father wanted to make wines that were very distinctive. He said, I want people to really taste the grape. I want people to taste the soil. I want the terroir to really show. And that was in contrast with what was happening pretty much everywhere, even in Italy. Wines used to be bigger. Wines used to be a little bit more oaky. Wines were made in order to appeal to international palates. So my father said, if if nobody likes them, I'll drink them myself. Uh, I don't care. It's my side project. I'm in my early 40s. I can do crazy things. You know, I'm putting my kids through school. They'll get a job. If this doesn't work... Uh, at least I will have tried. <laughs> so yeah, I must say the first 15 years were difficult. Then uh, more and more producers cropped up, local, uh, non-local, a community was born, journalists and experts around the world started to drink Etna. They started to become known among uh, the circles of connoisseurs and then wine geeks and, uh, you know, things just developed from there. When my brother and I moved back to Italy, the winery already had quite a reputation. What we did is work alongside my father, uh, who in the meantime sold his pharma business, helped him invest pretty much everything he made in the winery, and then, um, you know, um, apply our own vision, uh, our own drive, let's say young age, at least back then, and to ensure that the winery um, would just stay on the right track and the uh, and develop both from an infrastructural point of view, um, a positioning point of view. Let's say, you know, we took the winery into a professional arena and say, okay, this is now a very, very serious uh, business. It's not a, a, good, a nice word when you talk to, about wine, you know, but, you know, this must work. The numbers must add up. Uh, we must make, you know, um, cater for different segments. So let's say, you know, uh, Wines for every day, um, wines that are longer aged, wines that are even longer aged, maybe make some sparkling. Uh, so we started to add, uh, let's say, some, uh, a little bit of more thinking. <laughs> uh, and, and in this, we drew inspiration from, from other investors that had come to Etna from um, other parts of the world or from Italy, and they knew 
um, everything about, you know, positioning and pricing. So my brother and I, in a very humble way, we said, okay, we've got an asset. Um, others um, are maybe more organized commercially. Let's just see how they do it. Let's just get the best ideas. Um, yeah, so in some things we were pioneers, in others we were followers, especially from a business perspective. So we added organization to the dream and we just kept going. And now the winery um, sells out. Uh, our most remote market is New Zealand, <laughs> funnily enough, uh, where <laughs> yeah. things are going extremely well. Marco is... Uh, incredible ambassador for, for Etna and Italian wine there. I was there only a few years ago. Uh, so yeah, so uh, at the moment, things are just great. And uh, the, the winery um, is part of a circle of uh, wineries on Etna that, uh, in my opinion, share very similar values and vision. We all try to make very authentic wines and we support each other. Um, like they say, you know, um, um, a rising tide floats all boats and there are a handful of wineries that are doing very well. And um, mm. we know that uh, if we all stay close and work by the same principles, the whole appellation will benefit from, uh, from our work and from the supporting environment that we have created. So at the moment, this is a, a wonderful time to be on Etna. And uh, looking back, I'm very grateful that my father had this crazy idea. Um, we mentioned Salvo Forti. He was instrumental in starting this. Uh, 13, I think it was 13 years ago, uh, he moved on to become a producer in his own right because his, his kids were growing up as enologists and he wanted to have his own, his own um, let's say, um, winery, which he did. So we promoted his junior. And so Kali, our current analogist, who's been with us since graduating. So his first, his first 10 years were in, in a capacity as assistant to Salvo Foti. And the, last, uh, and the last 12 years have been in his capacity as sole analogist. So um, there, is, um, there is an element of continuity, what we did, probably what my brother and I did uh, in the last 12 years is try and uh, maybe change things a little bit in the sense that uh, back in the 90s, back in the year 2000, maybe Etna wines were a little bit, um, let's say, there was a little bit more concentration, there was a little bit more extraction. My brother and I decided that we wanted to go for purity, um, leanness, uh, verticality, and we want, and, you know, and put elegance above everything else. So mm-hmm. I think yeah. that we, we have managed to, uh, you know, um, bring something of our own to the winery in the last uh, 12 years. Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Mama Jumbo Shrimp. Oh, yeah, definitely, Salvino. Uh, I wanted just to make a comment on what you said in terms of the working together, because a wine-to-wine, I just saw a presentation by three leading, other leading producers of of Sicilian wines. We were together, talking together about how to grow Sicilian wine. This, this, this was so, so, so good. I mean, this uh, basically proves your point, but uh, I mean, joining forces together is the way to go to promote uh, a territory. And um, but now specifically, Salvino, do you want to go more details in terms of uh, uh, Benanti is, 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 is the only winery on Etna with vineyards on all sides of the volcano. 
this is quite a specific uh, mm-hmm. of, uh, of Benanti. What, in your opinion, what makes Etna wines uh, and Benanti wines in particular distinctive? And this is the adjective that you used before, distinctive. Yeah, well, um, we are in a place that is quite special. I mean, if you had been here yesterday, <laughs> you would have seen a huge eruption. Um, I was driving and, uh, in the evening and I looked at the volcano and I saw this big glow. It's quite normal for us. You know, we don't stress out about it. It doesn't worry us. We just know that this happens on a very regular basis. Uh, my brother was due to land back in Sicily from New York just a couple of days ago. And I was worried his plane might not land because it was a huge cloud of black, black ashes over the city of Catania. Um, so this is our daily life. When we speak of an active volcano, Maybe the word active does not begin to describe how active this volcano really is. So it's literally not one day that goes by without something that would elsewhere be described as a huge event, which is just normal for us. Eruptions, little earthquakes, ash, rain, ash storms. It's a place that cannot be ignored. There's an army of uh, volcanologists that permanently live on Mount Etna and they check the pulse of the volcano. If you are a volcanologist, if you are a geologist, Etna is your dream place. There is always something happening. And there's a huge international community that lives on Mount Etna just to study the volcano. Um, Sicily, Sicily sits on, on the African plate. The rest of Italy sits on the Asian plate. There is literally a crack between this island and the rest of Italy. And it's a huge seismic area um, with... Um, constant threat of things happening. Fortunately, events are so frequent that they, they turn out to be quite mild. So we call it a touristic volcano <laughs> because it's constant entertainment at almost zero risk. I say almost because you never know. But uh, during my lifetime, nothing major has happened apart from a big eruption some 40 years ago that lasted a few months, but lava didn't really reach anywhere um, you know, didn't really pose a threat. Some people had to evacuate their homes, but it was literally the guys living really, really high up. Etna is much bigger than people think. Lava is very thick. It flows slowly. You can go see it. You can re- literally stand a few meters from it, take pictures next to it, and, uh, and be totally unarmed. So uh, lava doesn't really um, concern us. What we are affected by every, every, on a very regular basis is ashes. But there's one point I would like to make. These ashes, this smoke has nothing to do with the fires you get in Australia, you get in California, when you had forests burning. This is not burning wood. There is no taint that we get from it. There is no smell. There is nothing uh, that may put our grapes in danger. It is very thin ashes that are scattered all over. They reach all the way down to Malta and Northern Africa. You can see them from satellite shots. So we have this volcanic identity, which is incredibly clear. Our soils are made of black sand, which is made from, the, uh, from hard lava from previous uh, millennia, breaking down into smaller particles and eventually sand, full of minerals, new minerals being added with these with this ash, um, ashes uh, that we get on a very regular basis. So our soils are unique to this place. Um, the grapes only grow here, Narello Mascalese, which, to make a long story short, we call uh, like a um, uh, legitimate son of Pinot Noir and uh, Nebbiolo, if they had an affair, if they had a, actually a proper, a proper marriage. 
Carricante, which in my opinion uh, may uh, resemble some uh, grapes uh, or at least some wines like Chablis, but we'll get into that later. So we have this elegance, leanness, uh, longevity that is uh, intrinsic in these grapes. So we have our own grapes, we have our own soils, we have a climate which is very peculiar. We sit on a very high volcano. Vineyards reach 1,000 meters, 3,000-ish feet. So it can be very cold, uh, and, but it can be very warm during the day. So you have a huge diurnal range, which, as we all know from studying wine, helps with retaining acidity and elegance while ensuring maturation. So you have the best of both worlds. So, um, and we have our own training system, which is usually um, head-trained bush vines, which ensure high density, a lot of competition between the vines, naturally, um, say, low yields. Uh, when the yields go above a certain level, we obviously, we, we tame the vines because these vines, they are used to fighting in very difficult conditions. So uh, when, they, when they're successful, they tend to produce, especially on the white grape, Carricante, quite a lot of grapes. So we have to do a lot of green harvest, we have to prune, we have to shed um, clusters of grapes. There's a lot of work going on. So this is the success of Etna comes from the fact that the natural elements here are very hard to match by other regions. It's a combination of things that has always been before our eyes that just needed a few heroes, uh, my father being one of them, to start uh, polishing the diamond. Um, so from Etna you get elegance, from Etna you get longevity, you get leanness, you get food friendliness, you get typicity, especially if you vinify them in a very simple way, not adding anything to them, not, not too much oak, in my opinion not too much extraction, but that's a stylistic choice that other producers may or may not agree with. So yeah. you cannot miss a wine from Etna. When you taste it, you know it's from, it's from Etna. And that helps. And it's a place that everybody knows. Huge volcano. You, know, you don't have to describe it. You don't have to describe it. People have heard of it. When it erupts and it ends up on the news in the US, we're like, oh, okay, great. People are looking at this. <laughs> they will see these magic words, E-T-N-A, Etna. And then they go to Shelly Lindgren's restaurant in San Francisco and they see Etna on the yeah. wine list. They want to drink it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Salvino, as as everyone everyone knows, uh, Etna can be described as an, an island inside an island. But give us uh, some um, ideas in terms of uh, variability of climate, of soils, or conditions around Etna, like in the northern side, the western, eastern, the southern side, because it can be very, very different. And this is uh, this is why you introduced this um, this contrade, this kind of a single vineyard. Uh, segmentation yes. of your yes. action is also happening with other producers as well. Yeah, and actually, I have not answered your previous question on, you know, the four slopes, so I'll get to it now. Uh, first of all, <laughs> just a few figures. Etna is only about 1,200 hectares. Uh, it's yeah. a very small region, and it runs from north through east to southeast and southwest. So, the full west side of Etna is not part of the Appalachian. We make, well, other people make pistachio there, almond, some international grape varieties like Cabernet is grown there. But, you know, that's not within our Appalachian. We, we, we don't obviously work with that, with that grape within the DOC area. Um, so um, it's a place which sits by the sea. Uh, so strong winds coming from the east 
because Etna sits on the east coast of Sicily. The wind blows mostly from the sea. So you have at least, uh, I would say, four different microclimates. The north of Etna obviously faces north. We're in the northern hemisphere, so when you face north, Contrary to New Zealand, <laughs> uh, you yeah. face, you say, let's say you face away from the equator, away from the sun, so it tends to be cooler. It tends to be cooler. Uh, it's also a little bit farther from the sea because the way the coast of Sicily is shaped, you know, it, it, it's, like a, it's like an arch, and the north of Etna is much farther from the sea than the east or south of Etna because of the way the coast is shaped. So yes, it is cooler. It is also quite, let's say, a little bit more continental. I know continental is a strict definition when you study, say, WSET, so I don't want, I'm not trying to teach anything, but let's say that northern Etna can be quite cold. Uh, some grapes struggle to ripen there, and they need a little bit of support. Uh, in my opinion, for example, Carricante up there benefits from the support of Cataratto, a little bit of oak aging, which is not the case in other parts of the volcano. Um, and Narello Mascalese is the dominant grape of the north face of Etna. Uh, Narello Mascalese is capable of delivering wines of incredible elegance. So on the north of Etna, we tend to make Narello Mascalese-based wines, which in my opinion resemble some Nebbiolos, let's say, which is the king of Italian grapes. So let's say maybe Narello Mascalese could be the prince or the heir to the throne. <laughs> so let's say that in the north of Etna, it's mostly that. Uh, a little bit less rain, for example, than in the east. So the north of Etna can be cold, can be quite dry, and it's very suitable for making uh, very earthy, floral, Nerello Mascalese-based wines. And then if you vinify them in a very clean way, you really get a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, earthiness out of them. If one wants, to go, one wants to go into greater detail, at certain elevations you get more power, at higher elevations you get more leanness, but that's quite straightforward. The east of Etna... Uh, is known mostly for its white wines. The east of Etna is the rainiest part of Etna, the rainiest part of, of Sicily. We get much more rain than anywhere else on, the, on Etna. Grapes struggle to ripen. We have the early morning sun, we have the early afternoon sun, but we miss most of the warmer hours of the day. So on the east of Etna, at high elevations, Carricante is grown. Carricante picks up a lot of salinity from the sea breeze, it has remarkable acidity at those high elevations on the east side of Etna, at about 800 meters. And you get white wines of incredible elegance with this, um, um, you know, uh, white flower notes. You have this, you know, you have thyme, you have uh, citric notes, you have, uh, um, I would say, um, fine wine characteristics. You know, they, wines that age very well, we keep them on the lease, so on the of Etna, you can make that kind of wine. The south of Etna is more versatile. First of all, it faces south, so you can be sure of the ripening. But you have two distinct segments. Southeast is very close to the sea. You get very intense winds and even some rain. So funnily enough, despite facing south, you can get elegance, you can get freshness, because the strong winds keep the air moving, uh, the heat doesn't sit on the vineyard, and um, you can get you can get versatile, um, uh, versatile lean Narello Mascalese, most uh, and also Carricante. If you drive another forty-five minutes clockwise, you reach southwest, and that is a completely different uh, world. You have to go to twice the elevation, one thousand meters, to escape the heat because it's farther from the sea. 
no mitigating effect from the sea breeze. So you have very intensely hot days. It can be in the 40s centigrade. And then you have, you know, upper, you know, um, 18, 19 degrees centigrade at night. So you have like a 20, 22 degrees centigrade diurnal range. Um, so you have a lot of concentration in the wines coupled with high acidity. So they're more extreme wines. Um, we have vineyards on these four sides of Etna. Other wineries have vineyards on two, three, maybe soon four, you know. And so every, every slope of Etna is subdivided into smaller areas, which we call contrade. There are different soils, younger, older. Uh, so you can really get very site-specific characteristics to show in your wines, which is why um, a visionary like Andrea Franchetti um, introduced the idea of contrades. Funnily enough, my father had always made single vineyard wine, but he never thought about mentioning it on the label. But actually, we were mentioning places like Rovitello. But eventually, you know, uh, my brother and I decided to introduce the Contrada-specific wines because we saw that that's, uh, um, that's something that other leaders like Franchetti, like Marc de Grazia, Alberto Gracci, Girolamo Russo, Giuseppe Russo were doing. So um, we, um, we went down the same route and we started, uh, we started then, uh, let's say, making our wine portfolio even more specific. What were formerly our single vineyard wines were elevated to the, to the status of reservas with longer aging. And then the rest of the grapes were used to make from the same vineyard Contrada wines. And then we added the sparkling. That was over 20 years ago. We introduced Rosato. So Etna is a region that lends itself to uh, the, the production of uh, multiple types of wine. And what they all have in common is typicity, site specificity, and leanness and elegance. So, yes. so yeah, small region with a lot to say. Sometimes it makes it difficult when you need to explain Etna in a few words, like I'm trying to do now. Uh, you get carried away and uh, you deliver a lot of information. I hope it's not information overload. Most of the information can be withdrawn from the back of your brain to the front of your brain when you try a glass of, of our or other producers' wines from Etna. And, and all of these ideas will, will spring back to mind and you will think of the elegance, the leanness, the, 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 the acidity, etc., etc. So it's a small area. And as you said at the beginning, as Stevie said at the beginning, this is a place where the only thing you can do is quality. There is no point in trying to make lower quality wine, mass production. It's just too small, too complicated, a lot of manual labor. There's no point in trying to go down that route. The only option is quality, quality, quality. It's the only, it's the only way. Otherwise, with the cost that we have to bear, if you don't make wine, which is an incredible quality, you position it where it needs to be positioned and you appeal to connoisseurs, then there's no way you can compete with large scale wineries that have much more efficient stru structures. So quality is the it's only way. Oh, fantastic. I absolutely agree. Um, just um, looking forward, uh, Salvino, what do you think would be the main challenges and the main opportunities for Aetna? In particular, i give you a couple of points. First is uh, this season has been quite difficult. Uh, and you, you wrote to me and uh, I know that there's been a, an unusual disease pressures, but something new, maybe due to climate change. But I want to hear your, your, your opinion. If it is, do you think it's related to climate change or 
or what else. And the second, the opportunity in, in terms of um, white wines from Etna, because uh, it, people think uh, uh, Etna would be mainly red wines, but uh, mm-hmm. I heard many people saying that actually Etna is extremely, as you say, is extremely suitable to for white wines. And you have a great examples in your production with uh, Pietra Marina. So do you think going forward that white wines will, will actually grow even more than reds uh, in Etna? Right. Well, to answer your question about climate, yes, this year was a difficult one. Um, We were just in a meeting of the Etna Wine Consortium the other day, and I was talking to other producers, and uh, uh, we were all sending out the same kind of emails to our partners scattered around the world. There's going to be less grape, there's going to be less wine, (laughs) good quality, but uh, low quantity. Yes, we had a very rainy spring. And that interfered a lot with um, not so much with the budding, but you know, with uh, with uh, flowering and pollination. So we were left at the end of June with uh, with a small quantity of grape, and then we were hit by a heat wave. Um, then we had a great month of August and of September. So the last few laps of this Grand Prix were easier, and we and we made it to the finish line. But uh, I'm not sure if it's related to climate change. It was definitely a bizarre, odd vintage. But last year was great. Last year was the best vintage in terms of quality and quantity of the last, you know, since 2016, in my opinion. So we want to give ourselves another 12 months to see what happens next year. We don't think it can get any worse than 2023. So we are considering 23 a difficult vintage, which may act as a bridge between an excellent vintage and what will hopefully be at least a normal vintage of 2024. Uh, so yes, uh, it, it was it was difficult. Uh, but I've spoken to other producers from Italy, and uh, between hail and floods and parasites, it was a very eventful year for Italian wine. Then when I, when, I, when I studied for my WCT and I, read, and I read about what happens in Champagne and in Burgundy, where they sometimes have to thank God if they manage to harvest anything, I realized that, yes, it was bad, but we're still blessed with a Mediterranean climate counterbalanced by cool winds and, uh, and uh, amazing diurnal range. So I still, think, I still think that we're privileged. And unless 2024 proves to be a disaster we will um, consider 23 a very unfortunate year, but hopefully not the new normal. In terms of Carricante, um, mm. I'm not a figures person, uh, despite having spent time in finance, <laughs> but uh, our, our, our salesperson, Agatino Faila, whom you know very well, is. And uh, yes. 10 years ago, and I'm, we, I must give him some credit, uh, ten years ago, he said, "You will see that Bianco from Etna will become a very important um, part of this appellation." Back then, Etna Bianco was under five percent of the production. Now it's near thirty-five percent. Mm-hmm. I see good and yeah. bad things with this. Good thing is that uh, the fact that producers um, like ourselves and others. I would like to mention Barone di Villa Grande, based in Milo. They were mm-hmm. together, together with, with uh, Cantine Russo, based in north of Etna. They started making wine on Etna way before us. So early that they had to work also with international varietals because there was not yet an awareness of local grapes. Um, and that's why I mentioned at the beginning that my father 
said, I would like to drink good wine made from local grapes because there are excellent wines made from blends or international varieties. So I would like to mention those wineries, the local families that were even more pioneer than we were. And Barone di Villa Grande is based in Milo, and they've always focused also a lot on Carricante. So it was us, it was them, Salvo Foti with his um, Carricante, and uh, I'm sure a few other names are escaped me now. And these... Um, these first movers started making aged whites that people started to appreciate. And many of them made wines without any oak on them, just lease aging and relying on the intrinsic acidity of the wine and the quality of the grape. And we have proved that these wines can age at least a couple of decades and become very, very complex as they age. So contrary to our first Vinitaly in the early 90s, when my father was bringing his, let's say, prototypes of aged white, and people were accusing him of trying to dump old stock on them. Now that's not the case anymore. Now people come to the winery and said, do you have anything young, uh, older than five years? And we say, yes, we have a library. It's like the crown jewels. You know, we are a little bit uh, uh, reluctant when people ask us to open a bottle from 20 years ago because um, we would rather open them in an event for example, uh, that we had one in China recently, we invited many, many sommeliers and we did a vertical tasting of some, I don't know, 15 vintages of Pietra Marina. Then you can kill many birds with one stone. You open a bottle and you have 50 people drink it and then influence the rest of the market. Opening a bottle at the winery for a wine collector, uh, of course, they may end up paying a lot of money from it for it, but let's say that it does not have the same mediatic effectiveness. So we're a bit reluctant to do that. When you come to the winery... <laughs> We try, we try to pour the more recent vintages. But of course, there are exceptions. Like, you know, if uh, Stevie comes, if Marco Nordio comes, and of course, red carpet, and you name it, we pop it. We pop it. <laughs> Having said that, so Carricante, in my opinion, has an incredible future. Flip side of the coin is our ancestors planted Carricante mostly on the east and south of Etna. Caricante struggles in very cold environments. It tends to be a little bit unripe. It tends to be a little bit lean. Uh, so because there is a lot of land available, uh, there was at least in the last 10 or 15 years in, in uh, other parts of Etna that are not the east or the south, Caricante was planted pretty much everywhere to ride the wave. Uh, then some people realize that Caricante from, uh, say, the north of Etna, can be a little bit too skinny and it needs a little bit of help. So then you had a new generation of more modern caricante blends that are blended with a little bit of cataracto, a little bit, a little bit of an understatement. You can reach up to 40% even by the appellation rules and a little bit of oak, a little bit of oxidation to give it complexity, to give it texture, to give it a little bit of, a, a little bit of support. So at the moment, the Etna appellation, when it comes to Bianco, um, affords the Etna DOC name to a number of wines. That can be pure stainless steel aged Caricante, or it can be blended oak aged, fermented and aged Caricante Catarato blend. So when you see Etna Bianco on the label, actually, Marco, it happens. When I went, when I was in New Zealand with you in March 2018, um, was it 18 or 17? I can't remember exactly. No, uh, 18, uh, we did an uh, in-store tasting at uh, Wine Direct in the outskirts of mm -hmm. Oakland. And there was a parallel yeah. tasting of two Caricantes. We were new mm -hmm. to New Zealand 
and uh, there were other wineries that were making wine on Etna on, with Caricante. And the, the consumers were shocked at the huge difference between, let's say, more intense, a little bit oaky, floral Caricantes and then razor-sharp, bone-dry, shy Caricante to cellar and forget about for five years, like hours. The people were looking at yes. the label... They both said Etna Bianco. Is this the same grape? Is this the same wine? So, well, it's the same appellation, I was saying. So there, mm -hmm. exactly there, I realized that the appellation rules were a bit loose and that we needed to do a lot of work to uh, explain that Caricante behaves very differently depending on when you where you plant it and that if there is no such thing as standard Caricante out there and the only way to know what you're drinking is to drink by producer rather than by grape. Hey, I know Benanti, that's how they make the Caricante. You know, and there's another winery called XYZ, XYZ, that makes it mm -hmm. in a different way. And they're both Etna Bianco. So I think we need to reach a consensus on how to make Caricante. Yes. But this is a democracy, yeah. it's not a dictatorship. So people can make Caricante the way they want. But at least, if not on the label, at least within the general public, there should be an understanding that Caricante from different sides of Etna can be very different. In a, uh, contrary to Narello Mascalese, who is always 100% Narello Mascalese, it can be more or less concentrated, more, uh, it can be more or less floral, but it's, it's very distinctive. Whereas Caricante, in my opinion, really depends on the producer. So because sommeliers do not have the whole day to dedicate to us and, and listen to our story, already you know, a few people are doing it on the podcast today, we must have some key messages that we can deliver very effectively because we are not the center of the world and we're not the only producer on earth. So when people listen to us and a sommelier in New York or Oakland is giving you 10 minutes of their time, you must deliver a very clear message. And with Caricante, we can deliver our own clear message Then somebody else walks through the door and pours a completely different Etna Bianco. And that can be a little bit of a problem, to be honest. But uh, the market uh, will make their decision. Yeah. So, so we might see, Salvino, some uh, tightening of, um, of the denomination rules in the, at the consortium level, looking ahead for Etna Bianco in particular. Yeah, well, actually, we pushed for DOCG. We voted in favor of DOCG. So there was a lot of articles in the, on social media and the press. So we um, unanimously decided to uh, take things one step uh, further. We are going to uh, progress to DOCG status. We, there's going to be reduced yield. There's going to be minimum aging. There's going to be um, a number of things that we have uh, drawn inspiration from uh, other regions for. And uh, so the appellation will become even more stringent. In terms of Etna Bianco, um, no, we haven't really changed. There were a few suggestions, but there was no consensus. So the, 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 the suggestion didn't, didn't, didn't go through. Um, but basically, um, Etna um, will become a DOCG if things go well within 24 months and uh, the rules will be published. There's going to be lower yields, longer aging, but the blend will still be allowed. Uh, they're the best way to make Etna Bianco in colder parts of the mountain for sure. And uh, so in my opinion, the different styles of Etna Bianco will both survive and then it will be up to the consumer to decide what they like more because there is no such thing as a wine which is better than another. It depends on your palate and what you're eating with it because we Italians, as you know, Marco, consider wine a complement to food. So depending on what you're eating, depending on the age of the wine, you will decide whether you want a certain kind of Etna Bianco or another one. If we polarize on two styles, it's okay. We can manage two as long as it doesn't become 10 or 15. Yeah, yeah. Um, looking about the food matching, I would like to... 
maybe we have the last 10 minutes of uh, this conversation. If we can, uh, if you can focus a bit, uh, Salvino, first of all, on the wine tourism area, where Benanti is quite active, uh, with an active cellar door activity. Yes. How do you see this going forward for your winery and in general for wineries in Italy? Because uh, I think... Uh, it's an area that it should be prioritized. And then yeah. if you can talk a little bit about the food matching uh, uh, suggestions for your wines. Yes, the wine tourism, we call them wine travelers uh, when they come to see us, is uh, a huge thing. Um, I've, I've traveled the world and I've been to wineries um, in the Anglo-Saxon world, mostly California, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. I was with you on Waikiki Island and yeah. uh, we had a great experience there. And uh, we, I took some of these ideas back home. In the last few years, we have hired a, a Michelin trained chef, uh, three sommeliers that are WCT trained, multilingual. And every day, literally every day from early March to late October, we receive no less than 20, 25 eager uh, wine connoisseurs. 99.9% foreign, unfortunately. Uh, Italians don't go much to wineries, at least in Sicily. Um, and we have the chance to influence them. We have the chance to expose them to our product range, to tell our story. We force them to spend at least a couple of hours with us. And we put them through a great selection of wines and food to go with them. And by the time they leave, not only do they... Not, not only have they developed an attachment to us but, and to Etna, but also they will become ambassadors. Uh, informal, not like you, you know, you studied, <laughs> you have your qualification. Informal, enthusiastic yeah. ambassadors of Etna. Uh, people that will buy a bottle from the shelf, bring it to their friends' homes, share it and tell our story. Absolutely in a spontaneous way, which is the most trusted advice, is one that comes spontaneously from your friends. We don't buy advertising space. We influence drinkers so that they can tell other drinkers what they have what they have experienced. So a lot of cellar doors have opened on Aetna. More will come. There's a, a lot of interest surrounding Aetna. There are at least 10, 15 good experiences that you can do on Aetna. When people visit us, they spend at least a week on Aetna. They see at least one or two wineries a day and they leave with a wealth of information. So we will be investing more and more in wine, uh, tourism, cellar door, developing one-to-one -one relationships with connoisseurs because you know, when I was on Waiiki Island with you and we drank the wines from uh, in Cable Bay, uh, every time yes. I see those wines, I, I, I drink them again because it reminds me of, of that day. Uh, it's yeah. very important. Same happened with other wineries, you know, in South Africa, in California, in, uh, in Spain, in France, in Northern Italy. Wine is something uh, romantic. And if you, if you enjoy your time at a winery, meet the producer and the people behind the labels, you fall in love with them and uh, you stay you stay loyal for the rest of your life so uh, it's part of it's it's an, there's an element of pride and there's an element of um, also business development uh, in terms of food pairing uh, etna wines are versatile food friendly wines usually we pair narello mascalese with the local local uh, maialino nero which is like a black uh, boar um, that uh, like mm -hmm. a, that we have locally but also you'll be surprised that it goes well with seared uh, tuna or swordfish. Tuna and swordfish are the local fish here from the Strait of Messina in Sicily. Carricante, obviously, 
depending on its aging. But it's a, it's a, it's a very crisp, bone dry um, wine with white flower notes, a citric or sometimes green to golden apple notes that goes well with, uh, with seafood. Not too much lemon, please, on the fish because it will clash with the acidity in the wine. Um, but I've had it also with light uh, main courses like risotto with asparagus. Um, so again, again, a very um, light, elegant white wine with, uh, with a lot of acidic structure. As it ages, it becomes much more complex. And then, uh, of course, it can be paired with more elaborate dishes. But these wines really show well. Before I know, I have to hand over to you. One thing I forgot to mention, uh, please do go to our website and download our study on, on local yeasts. As far as I know, we're the mm -hmm. only winery that has spent five years researching local yeasts and growing them in a laboratory. So we don't purchase any commercial yeasts. My father, as a chemist, he studied hundreds of strains, worked five years on microvinification experiments and came up with four yeasts which we have patented that we are exclusive to us, that are ambient yeast of Narello Mascalese, Carricante and Cappuccio that we use for our wines, plus a fourth one for sparkling. And that, in my opinion, is a distinctive element of our vinification style. You know, we use local yeast to make sure that we try to replicate what nature would have done. So it's not spontaneous fermentation. We induce it, but with local yeast that we know are going to do a good job. And we try to go for leanness and elegance and purity above everything else. Yes. No, fantastic, Salvino. One, one follow-up question on your, on your mentioning of uh, your activity on the cellar door, you're visiting uh, um, uh, people to, to the winery. Do, do, you, do you keep in touch, after they leave uh, the winery, do you keep in touch with these people? Do you have a, a database where you send them updates on the new vintages, on the new wines with, with visitors? We're developing one these very days with an Italian uh, expert from Tuscany uh, because we would like to create a community to keep people uh, yes. informed, engaged, invite them back. And mostly, because we travel so much, what we would love to do is go to people home, people's homes and uh, they will have bought the wine locally at their local corner store and then they maybe organize a dinner with their friends and we happen to be at the table and we share our story. So that's what we want to do. We would like to introduce... Uh, a program whereby when we travel, you know, if I know I'm going to be in Oakland in three months and uh, you give me an evening off or you come with me, Marco, we can go yes. to some wine connoisseur from Oakland or from Wellington and, uh, or the South Island and, uh, and spend an evening with them. They invite friends over. We provide the entertainment <laughs> and uh, it becomes a very interesting evening. So that's one thing. We've done it informally. I've done it a few times in Seattle, for example, in the US, but I would like to, this to be a more um, you know, a uh, more um, organized thing where we go to people's houses and we become uh, just one extra guest at their table with a story to tell. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, that's a great idea. I think the idea of creating this community is key and it can be really worldwide. I mean, even involving importers, obviously, because um, you kind of... It becomes a situation where you, you send the, across the world the, the same message. You align all importers with your message from the winery. So the importers become a kind of, a, they, 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 they propagate this, this message of like uh, news from the winery. I think this is a way to go, creating a community, definitely. 
Definitely, definitely. The wine world is uh, is a community. You you mentioned the fact that Shelley Lindgren knows Michael from uh, from Baduzzi yeah. and from the from the Grove. It's incredible how small the wine community is, you know. And uh, it's it's a privilege to 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 belong to it in some capacity. Producer, importer, journalist, just a common wine drinker. It's a very healthy community where I've never met an unpleasant person because we all revolve around the product, which uh, is uh, like a celebration of uh, of culture lifestyle uh, and family tradition so there's, there's nothing that can possibly go wrong when you spend time in the wine community <laughs> no totally i totally agree and it's about building memories with the memories that would help to appreciate the wines and food and wine uh, even more totally i agree 100 percent very good. I think we we close. Uh, we we spent one hour, very pleasant an hour. With us. Very good. Very nice. Thank you so much, you guys. What, oh, a, what a great uh, pod. What a great call. And um, I have a very special um, place for the Venante family because I went to visit them. Um, on a Sunday, as I recall, Salvino, you weren't there. Just Antonio and your dad. Um, few years back, it was my sister's birthday, and they landed um, from New York in Catania, and it was a Sunday, and on our way to Lingua Glossa, we stopped, and your dad went to the, I think, a rotisserie and bought all this food um, on a <laughs> Sunday, <laughs> and we had this lovely spread of local dishes, and of course, great wine, so we have very very fond memories my family as well so thank you thank so you, much salvino for joining us today just quickly how are your roles like different in at, at the winery you and antonio we share responsibilities we oversee things you know we've done a lot of studying and from wct to you know enology and agronomy so we tend to understand uh, a lot of pretty much uh, everything that happens at the winery. But of course, we employ specialists. Our role is to coordinate things, to make decisions on where the winery should go and make sure everything stays on track. Obviously, because we speak uh, languages and we are quite well-versed and we are international people, we tend to spend a lot of time on the road sharing the story um, on, on the various markets. Uh, and um, we also spend time in the tasting room. At the moment, we're focusing a lot on the technical aspects because we are due to build a new cellar in the next uh, three years. Oh, exciting. So, yeah, yeah. So we're looking at that. We're looking at that. So obviously, you know, engineers, architects, a lot of experts. It will take a while, but it's the, we, we hope to be able to complete the project within, uh, within three years. Uh, We'll be more specific when uh, when things are more like finalized, but uh, it's the big task for the short term, short to medium term is uh, is that. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Salvino, for joining us today and Marco for inviting uh, Salvino to our community. And Laika is just right next to me. Laika, do you want to tell us what's up coming up next? Um, hi. Hi, Stevie. Hi, everyone. So next week we're going to have a clubhouse uh, marathon. Nice. So it's a holiday special. It just means she's going to work me to the ground. <laughs> so anyway, so what will happen is on December 5, it's going to be Luis Reineri interviewing Nadia Zenato. Charlotte Ho on December 6 will be interviewing Federico Graziani. And on December 7, Barbara Fitzgerald will be interviewing Massimiliano Apollonio. 
Okay, I, I just quickly, I forgot to mention that Nico Munari uh, wrote, had a bottle of Etna Bianco here uh, in Paris at Nota Restaurant last week. It was fabulous, as always. Thank you for the fantastic story and beautiful wines. And Claudia Fanchi, hi, like it. Thank you for your room. I'm, I'm from South Africa. So there you go. Audience from all over the world, even if it's not our usual slot. So thank you so much again for joining us. And until next time. Good, Steve. Ciao, thank you all. Ciao, arrivederci. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, ciao.